The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. We're speaking today in the 6th of Romans and have come to the 17th verse where we read, God be thanked that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Every believer in Christ rejoices when the fruit of the redemption of Christ is observed in another human being. Now such a text as this should cause every believer to make a close spiritual examination of his attitudes towards other Christians. I stress this all the more urgently because I find so great a lack of love amongst professing Christians. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Christian Love. When two men fight over a woman, one will become jealous and bitter if the other man wins her love. But the Christian heart rejoices when others receive the love of God through faith in Jesus. God's abounding love transforms us, compels us to reach the lost with the gospel, and fills us with joy when sinners experience salvation in Christ. Do the things that warm the heart of God warm your heart as well? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Christian Love. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thine eternal word and rejoice in the fact that thou hast spoken and that thy word shall not return to thee void. Use it in this hour for thine own purposes, and to the praise and glory of thy grace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We who contemplate our own hearts under the strong light that streams from the cross of Christ are well aware what we were before God touched us. We know that we deserved nothing whatsoever from God, but that we have received from him in grace our new life, eternal life, and that its presence is slowly transforming us into the likeness of the Son of God. How could it be otherwise that a true believer should fail to recognize and to rejoice and to be thankful to God when this same transforming grace is manifest in some other child of Adam? For the salvation of any soul brings that one out of darkness and into light and is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. And this should be the cause of the deepest thanksgiving on our part. We discover in the writings of Paul that his heart constantly turned to God with praise and joy at the news of the salvation of another soul. 
to the Philippians, he wrote, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you all, always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy. To the Ephesians, he wrote, Since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, this is a manifestation of true Christian love, and indeed, it is one of the divinely given proofs that we are saved. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren, we read in 1 John 3:14. Some people were shocked recently when I said from the public platform that I was certain that there would not be as much gossip among 100 prostitutes or 100 bartenders or 100 lawyers, nurses, doctors, teachers, or 100 theatrical people as there is among 100 visitors to a Bible conference or 100 women working in a church. The people who heard me say this seemed shocked, but no one challenged it, and afterwards several commented on the fact that they believed that it was true. Now what makes for such an attitude? It is certainly because we are lacking in Christian love, and this lack comes perhaps from the fact that we have not adopted the attitude of our text. If you are truly thanking God for his work of grace in the life of a, another believer, you are not going to be attacking the reputation of that person with some sinuous tongue. I was closely associated for many years with a very dear Christian who is now in heaven. I never knew her to speak an uncharitable word against anyone. On one occasion, she could well have been bitter against a very vulgar woman who had acted outrageously toward her, but instead she was kindness itself. When I remarked on it afterwards, she said, but I couldn't help feeling kind toward her, for I realized what she would have been if she had not been saved. I was stunned for a moment, and then I saw the depth of the thought. Look at this, for example, look at this Christian youth leader who adopts the dress of a racetrack tout or a Hollywood film star, and whose manner is vapid and inane. Shall he be criticized? Rather, let us think what he would be if he were not saved. The vulgar traits would be sharpened with dishonesty. The low traits would be deepened with vice. But Christ has come into the heart, and there is true growth visible. We should be profoundly grateful to God because of this revelation of his power in the life of such a one. All individuals are born into this world at a given position on a social and cultural scale. Some have the good fortune to be born against a background of culture and refinement, of education and religion. Some are born in a jungle in Africa, in the midst of savagery. If we draw a scale from zero to 100 and classify all human beings roughly against the standard which we set up, we will discover that the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to a person on any level will lift them above themselves and bring them higher on our scale. It's very sinful for someone who was born on the cultural scale at a point which we might arbitrarily count as 80, to criticize someone for their acts, which are really comprehensible when we realize that they were born at a cultural level of 40. And at times, the one who started at 80 has advanced no further than 81.2, while the one who was born at 40 may have come up to 55 or 60. Look, for example, at this African savage. He was born at a level we might call five on our scale. If left to himself, he might degenerate to four, three, or two. But the gospel comes in, and he is rapidly transformed. Missionaries who have come from a background of high Christian standards must not be discouraged by the slow progress of their charges. 
Rather, they must rejoice that they have moved from five to eight to ten to fifteen. The children of these converts will move from fifteen to thirty, and so on generation after generation. We should remember that most of us come from ancestors who were once living on acorns in the German forest, and that God declares that we were at that time godless, hopeless, and Christless. In a recent publication by the government of southern Rhodesia, the letters of the missionary pioneer Robert Moffat were made public for the first time. The editor of the volume speaks of the missionary's disgust for the black people among whom he worked. Listen. As for the Bechuana among whom he was working, he was quickly and permanently disillusioned by them. A kind of naked people of licentious habits, Moffat calls them quaintly at one point, and that remained his opinion of all Africans, whether Bechuana, Hottentot, Grika, Matabele, and remained that to the end. Nearly all converts turned out to be disappointing. He wrote, adultery, fornication, and incest have been the reigning crimes of the baptized Hottentots of Latatku. But if he was soon disenchanted, the editor of the volume says, that can only add to our respect for his tenacity in pressing on with his work until he was ultimately able to render great and permanent services to the people he so much disapproved of. He never despaired. His hope in the face of bitter discouragement might have seemed merely fatuous, but it is redeemed and justified by his determination to master the Tswana language so that he could express his message with the greatest precision. That's the end of the quotation. Now, a close analysis of that opinion of the secular editor about the Christian missionary shows that this editor did not understand the nature of the Christian message and the work that was to derive from it. Moffat, the missionary, was not intolerant of the black people. He lived closely enough to Christ so that he maintained a profound hatred of all the sinfulness of the people among whom he worked and a profound love of the people themselves because he loved and served the Christ who died for them. The fact that he gave himself unstintingly to the language of the people in order that he might express his message with the greatest precision shows that he had faith in the written word of the living God and that he knew that the word would do its work. When I was in Africa, I ran across this same situation. The heads of a Bible institute, which was training men for the Christian ministry, told me that they had 50 students in their school and that there had been a total of several hundred students over the previous 10 years, and that there had never been a student in the Bible school, not one, who had not been brought on the carpet at some time or other on a morals charge involving bigamy, fornication, adultery, or worse. But the missionaries understood the nature of the situation, and they were pouring out their hearts in gratitude to God because these men who had come out of utter savagery who had been born in polygamous households, that they were growing in the power of the gospel, and because they knew enough to be repentant for their sins and to desire to grow in holiness of life. I recently had a most refreshing experience with one of the leaders of a great missionary society. I spent a week lecturing at a summer Bible conference, and there was an outstanding missionary speaker there who showed pictures of his work each evening and told of the great needs of Western Africa. I became well acquainted with this man and formed a higher and higher opinion of him after each conversation. We spoke one day of a young man who wanted to be a missionary. 
and who asked the society whether they would accept him if he married the girl whom he loved deeply. She's a fine Christian and has been saved only about three years. Before her conversion, she had contracted a wartime marriage, which had ended with her being abandoned by the husband who had gone off with another girl. There'd been a divorce. Two years later, she was truly born again. Now, the missionary candidate asked if he would be accepted to the mission field if he married this girl. I told my friend that I'd spoken to the heads of two other missionary societies who had both said that all the events in the life of a person before their salvation should be considered as past and gone forever. My friend remarked, yes, that's true. But nevertheless, he said, I, I'll wager that none of these missionary societies will have the moral courage to stand behind that position because they're afraid of what some people will say. In other words, they recognize that there are multitudes of professing Christians who cannot truly thank God that he has worked marvelously in the life of a young woman who has been turned from a worldly carnal person into a new creature in Christ with spiritual desires that would take her to the heart of the mission field. The church that should thank God with great rejoicing for the salvation and call of such a person takes an attitude that is really anti-Christian. They are not obeying the word of God. They are not conforming themselves to the attitude that is shown in our text, where the great apostle thanks God for the transformation in the lives of people who have come under the preaching of the word of God. My missionary friend then went on to tell me of similar instances of lack of love on the part of Christians. He and his wife had taken into their home a girl who was about to be a mother and who was not married. The child was born in their home and carefully cared for. Then a friend of this girl in the same predicament also came into the home and had her child among such Christian surroundings. And then people in the church began to murmur. To them, these fine Christian people were making sin easy. According to them, a girl who'd gotten into trouble should receive a kick in the face from society in order that she might learn the horror of not conforming to the outward standards of a corrupt society. And my friend excited their wrath to the point of fury by telling them that the difference between themselves and the poor girls who had been befriended by his wife and himself was that these girls had been caught while the accusers had not been. And he was even threatened with a suit for slander. But he and his wife persevered. And over the course of the years, 18 unfortunate girls were taken into their home, delivered of their babies, and helped back into normal life. The babies were adopted into various Christian homes, and the mothers frequently became fine Christians. Indeed, two of these girls, saved and transformed, are on the foreign mission field today doing excellent work as teachers or nurses. And this is quite all right in the eyes of the gossips simply because they don't know about it, just as the societies didn't know about it when they accepted the candidates. And they should be on the foreign field. God does take the past and wipe it out. And the past should never be considered when God has entered into a soul. Undoubtedly, there are professing Christian people who praise these girls for their missionary devotion, who would turn and criticize them today if they knew that 20 years ago, before they were saved, these girls had fallen into what might be called the normal sin of the unregenerate. Now, I do not wish anyone to think that I'm asking that the bars of moral standards should be lowered in the slightest. God forbid. What I am hoping for is that more Christians can have more of the love of Christ in their attitude toward those around them. 
and that they shall not allow the falls of individuals to prejudice their love of the individual. The line of demarcation which we must draw is that between sin and the sinner. I believe that it's possible to love a sinner while hating his sin. Such an attitude will give us great kindness toward him, great patience with him, and great desire for his spiritual growth, which will take us back to God in gratitude for what has been done and in hope and prayer for what shall yet be done. If we only loved enough, we would bend over sinners with the anxiety of a mother who leans over the couch of a feverish child, thankful for every regular breath, rejoicing at the disappearance of the flushed look and the bounding pulse, and the coming of the relaxed appearance that denotes the transition to convalescence. There is the true meaning of the great injunction in Galatians, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you too be tempted. The Greek word that is used for restore in that Galatians passage is that which was used in ancient times for the setting of a bone fracture. Oh, if Christians would only act toward other Christians with the same care that they would want a doctor to act in setting a broken bone in their own arm. What kindness there would be, what gentleness. What an effort would be exercised to protect and care for them. I do not believe that it is possible to have Christian love for those round about us, and especially for those who might be unlovely by some standards of our own, unless we look at them in the light of this text in Romans and are thankful to God for them because they have been brought out of death and into life. According to the context, these people had been the servants of sin, and they had now obeyed the gospel from their hearts. Praise God. They were new creatures in Christ Jesus. Thank God. Do not think for an instant that they had lost all their sinfulness. The context shows us clearly that they were outwardly but little different from that which they had been before. But inwardly, there was the divine difference. And Paul knew that there was going to be growth, and he praised God for it. There are some who call themselves Bible teachers who will almost scream against what I have just said, but the context cannot allow any other statement of the truth. These objectors will wish to claim that these Roman Christians had become absolutely sanctified. They had become nothing of the kind. It is not necessary for me to enter my pulpit in Philadelphia and tell the members of my congregation that they should not go out and get drunk. They do not go out and get drunk. I do not have to tell them not to engage in licentious revels, for they do not engage in licentious revels. But it was necessary for Paul to tell the Corinthian Christians that they were not to do certain devilish things, which was the proof that some of them were still engaging in these practices. And the context of our verse in Romans shows that he is still forced to talk about their human limitations, the frailty of their nature, the infirmity of their flesh. And as we come to the next chapter, he'll tell them frankly, that the same conflicting lusts are yet within his own nature, striving within him with great warfare. More and more I am convinced that the mixture of justification and sanctification robs the grace of God of its depths and robs sanctification of its power. Oh, if we would only understand that justification and sanctification are not the same thing. A man is saved without being sanctified even in the fraction of one percent. He is saved as he is. 
Yes, if you like it, he is saved in his sins, though he is saved to be taken out of his sin. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But how is it done? In an instant, saved from the guilt of these sins. But oh, the process by which he whittles us down, by which he sandpapers us, by which he brings us on to the life of holiness. And so here in Romans, he thanks God for the great transformation that had taken place in the fact that these people had been born again. And what he is doing at the point of our text is to rejoice at the first sign of the reality of their life in Christ. The set of the sails is changed. They're on a new course. The outlook of life is different. The dead tree has received a miraculously new root. and The old stick is beginning to bud. There are signs of future blossoms. And the blossoms will one day fall before the coming fruit. This is a cause for great joy. And the apostle thanks God. When I was a small boy, I was brought up in California. And I had a friend who lived in the country, four or five miles from our town. And his family had a fine vineyard. Early one summer, I spent some time with him. And we went out among the vines that were already heavy with well-formed clusters of grapes. There we played. In fact, I regret to say we tore from the vines some of the bunches of grapes that were hard as bullets, used them in slingshots, used them as ammunition to fire at each other. And these grapes, some of them we tasted. Now, we knew that when the autumn came that they would be purple with sweet juice, but at that time they were hard and green. And boy-like, as we pulled some of the grapes and put them to our lips, we discovered the sourness of green grapes which is, of course, proverbial. My lips puckered, and my teeth were set on edge. But nevertheless, in spite of the bitterness of the grapes, it was good to walk between the vines, for there's a fragrance, the fragrance that rises from the whole vineyard that is most pleasant. I wonder if you know that the Bible describes this in a very beautiful passage in the Song of Solomon. There we read in the second chapter, Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Yes, answers St. Paul in our text. Praise God for what we see in these young Christians out of the paganism of Rome. Oh, the tender grape may be sour, but the vines are oh so sweet. And we may be sure that there will be a purple harvest at the time of the vintage. So it is that the old deacons must not be horrified at the flamboyancy of the life of young Christians. Yes, the young Christians who cause you so much trouble today because you think them what you call worldly, they in turn will become deacons if you give them enough years. For they have obeyed from the heart the truth of the word of God. And the word of God is the seed of life, and it will bring forth in its day the harvest, the harvest that will be well-pleasing to God. So let us then thank God. When you hear of missionary converts, thank God. When you see around about you a Sunday school pupil that confesses Christ as Savior, thank God. When you hear of any story of true conversion, not merely an outward decision, but of the reality of accepting Christ, oh, thank God. For here is the implanting of life, and that means growth. And God calls us out in gratitude to him that once more he stoops to touch 
the human race. And we pray thee, our God and Father, that the Holy Spirit shall take the lesson to each heart. There are some listening this afternoon who need to come out of death and into life. Perhaps they've been blocked because they have seen littleness and narrowness among believers. Help them to understand that what thou hast done in any Christian is the work that thou art willing to begin in them. And that just as any individual can comprehend that there's much to be done in making him like Christ, may he understand that there's much to be done in making us like Christ, so that he may never take offense of anything that we do, and that his only offense be that which shows him his lost condition and brings him to the knowledge of Christ as his personal Savior from sin. So we pray thee that thou wilt give to any who do not receive Christ, that thou shalt give to them restlessness, that they may know no peace till they rest in the Savior. But upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And a new sense of the rich wonder of thy work in the children of men. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power. Now, till our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. We deserve no blessing from God, but he has given us eternal life by his grace and love. We have experienced the miracle of salvation and we rejoice when others experience it as well. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Christian Love. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Christian Love or simply request message number R6-35. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled The Gospel We Like to Hear. The Bible warns us against following teachers who will tickle our ears with false doctrines that appeal to our fleshly nature. This free booklet clearly sets forth the true biblical gospel and sounds a warning against ear-tickling, people-pleasing distortions of the good news, including the false religions of signs and wonders, salvation without lordship, and the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Ask for your free copy of The Gospel We Like to Hear when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.